Crushworthy, the show where we talk about the people you should have a crush on. Because not everyone is terrible. My name is Kat. And I'm Michaela. And it's been already an eventful recording session. Oh yeah. <laughs> We've got cats acting crazy. Oh my god. I had to let Angus into my into what is now my recording area because he was outside the door screaming, and sure enough, two minutes after I let him in, he knocked over my potted plant. So he's out. Hopefully we won't hear him screaming. Although, because I can't really hear myself, Michaela, you're going to have to let me know if if he starts making noise. (laughs) Oh, man. He's such a little stinker. He really is. He's lucky he's cute because otherwise I'd put him outside. Uh, How are you doing? I am doing well. Um, I forgot to tell you this before we started our before we we had a little chat before we started recording and I neglected to tell Kat that I actually cut my finger on my wine glass as I was <gasps> this has never happened before and I don't know how it happened but like I poured the wine and then I like went to grab it and then I dropped the glass but like and then caught it before it shattered but somehow in the process of that I sliced my finger and I don't oh, no. know I don't know how that happened because no part of the glass is sharp so it's a mystery are you okay? Oh yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been already like the last half an hour has been full of mishaps and misadventures already. Yeah, that's just the vibe today. It is the vibe. We're now in September. It's the first. I can't believe it. Like we record we started recording about a year ago, right? Yeah, just about. I'm going to have to check to see when exactly when exactly we started because we are coming up on our 1 year anniversary. Oh my goodness. Well, that's exciting, though. I can't wait to complain about the weather. Uh, (laughs) It's like my favorite (laughs) pastime. But uh, despite the fact that the days are going to get shorter, the weather's going to get cooler, the world's going to shit, we should find some things to celebrate today. Yeah, Uh, like like technically spoopy season starts today. I know, I'm so excited. It's It's like the beginning of spoopy season. Yeah, according to Facebook and all of the people I follow, it's it's definitely the start of spoopy season. So I'm very excited. <laughs> I don't know how we'll be able to celebrate, but we'll figure something out. Oh, yeah. We always do. We're adaptable. Um, well, with that, do we want to jump into self-love circle? I know it's been a while since we've been here, but yeah. I think it's time. Yeah. Um, do you want to go first this week, Kat? Yeah, I can go. I can go first. So uh, we last week we did record an episode in our new setup, and uh, we were kind of focusing on other things, so I didn't really get to express how excited I am about having a recording studio in my house right now. Uh, we finally got our second bedroom cleaned out. We got new furniture for it. I bought a second monitor uh, to hook up with my laptop to make things a little more professional. But I just I feel like... Uh, I feel like we're finally getting in the groove of being able to to be good at this. And I'm just very proud of of us and specifically proud of like my little space that I've set up in this room. You should be. It looks really nice. Thank you. It is very nice. Yeah, I've posted, uh, if you follow us on Instagram you, or, or Twitter, I think too, you may have seen, I posted photos of 
the setup that I had going on, minus the additional monitor that I just got yesterday. But uh, it's it's just it's cozy. It's nice. The cats technically are not allowed in here, but <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. I just want to keep the plants alive. Um, but that's definitely this has been like where I've been. Uh, just relaxing and hanging out over the past couple days, and it's nice to be able to finally utilize this space in my home. Uh, but yeah, it, it's it's nice to have just a me space. I say ten seconds after having to kick my cat out of the room. Again. <laughs> but I mean, so, would it really would it really be a you space without your cats? That's you, a very good point. They have to make visits every now and then. Yeah, they just, well, and then Angus will just come in, and then he'll just flop down on the floor, just like, yes, I live here, this is my space, you can't keep me out, that kind of thing. <laughs> I but, mean, I, I yeah. think that they sense that it's not supposed to be for them, and that's why they want to be in there so badly. Well, that's why every time you guys come over, like, my cats just gravitate towards Austin, because he's allergic, and they know that, and they're like, oh, I'm not supposed to be here or be around this person? That's exactly where I'm going to go. <laughs> cats are assholes like that they are but yeah uh definitely the studio space is my is my self-love circle i think this week nice so what about you well so for me the last several weeks i've gotten really i've gotten into a really good workout routine which i haven't had in many moons (laughs) (laughs) um jonathan um, our roommate uh teaches fitness classes about uh twice a week and i've been going to each one for like pretty consistently wow and then last week i ventured a little bit out of my comfort zone and i tried a one of those like cycle spin classes and uh i've taken those before and my experience with them has always been terrible because they are just they usually feel like torture like they just are so difficult Mm -hmm. (laughs) but i needed i wanted something that would be like good for cardio and that would get my heart rate up and so i was like oh i'll just give it a try it's been it's been a minute since i've tried one so i'll I'll do it um and it ended up being really really enjoyable oh that's Um, awesome and so i was really proud for just you know stepping out of my comfort zone a little bit and you know just having a consistent routine of of you know being active because for the last several months i feel like i i've just i mean we've all been just stuck inside of our homes and so it's been nice to be able to actually physically move (laughs) yeah that's that's, so that's that's my self-love circle for this week that's awesome no that's that's a big accomplishment because I you know at the beginning of this year I was so pumped up I was doing that thing that we all do where I was like I'm gonna start going to the gym and working out regularly and then that option was kind of taken off the table for me Mm -hmm. so and it's really easy to look at it like I it's not my responsibility I don't have to worry about it because of the world being the way it is right now but it is when you have that moment where you're like, actually, you know what? This is going to be a better choice for me. I do actually need to find a way to make this work. Like, that's <laughs> that's important. It's great that you were able to, to do that and that you've been able to keep it up. Yeah, thank you. We'll see how long I can keep it up for. But I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to incentivize it a little bit for myself. Like, if, mm-hmm. I can, if I can do it consecutively for, like, one month, I got to try to figure out some little prize i can give myself yeah you definitely deserve you definitely deserve a present to yourself (laughs) but yeah i i'm i'm in the camp where i just think i constantly deserve presents no matter what i accomplish which is not the best way to live (laughs) 
I'm kind of I'm kind of like that too, though. <laughs> I think like any any small accomplishments, I'm like I deserve a treat mm-hmm. of some yeah. sort. Absolutely. And Discipline. I, think, I don't know her. <laughs> it's and I think that's I think that's healthy. I think mm-hmm. that you, you got to celebrate the small victories. Right. As long as you're not, you know, celebrating eating like a like a vegetable by like Ben eating an entire chocolate cake, like reward yourself in like other ways that yeah. make sense and, and are good for you, but still make you happy. Yeah. So, though, that's great. That's really exciting. Yeah. Um, I do need to start working out for sure. But I always say that and uh, it never happens. So I guess we'll see. <laughs> What are you drinking over there? I am drinking blueberry wine. Ooh. What are you drinking? I'm still stuck on Truly's, the hard seltzer. Ooh, you've been on that for a little while. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's they're a lot better than I thought they would be. My sister-in-law got me hooked on them at the beginning of the summer, and uh, we've like consistently had them stocked in our house because it's it's like the one alcoholic drink where I can have like one or two of a night and still be completely sober and still like enjoy drinking Mm -hmm. whereas like a glass of wine like two glasses of wine and then i'm done and then i'm just dehydrated (laughs) (laughs) so it's nice to like have a drink that if i drink enough of it i may get a buzz but i don't have to worry about like getting a headache three hours into my evening yeah yeah that's definitely what these these new seltzer drinks are good for for sure because there's uh truly's and then there's white claw Mm-hmm. And uh, I've had them both, but I, I much prefer the Truly. They're very, very good. I have not tried a White Claw yet, but right now I've got this grapefruit one, and then I've got um, a passion fruit one on deck Ooh. Uh, <laughs> that Josh brought up for me before we started recording. <laughs> so we're good to go with our with our beverages. Oh, um, yeah. Is it time? I think so. My gosh. We're getting ah! ready to go into Crush Corner. It's been so long since we've been here. It feels so good to be back. It sure does. All right, Kat. So are you going to kick us off today? Who are you crushing on this week? So, uh, yes, I'm going first this week. And I'm really excited because this is actually someone that I've been wanting to talk about for quite a while. Pretty much since, um, since the beginning of the year, she's been in the back of my mind as someone who I think would be great to discuss. But today I'm going to be talking about Sister Rosetta Tharp, who is known as the original soul sister and the godmother of rock and roll. Ooh. Mm-hmm. She's very cool. I'm super excited to talk to you about her. Um, have you ever heard of her? No, I haven't. See, a lot of people haven't, but she was a huge influence to rock and roll as a genre um, in the 40s through the 70s, basically. Uh, she influenced pretty much every rock and roll icon that you can think of who you know you think of like the founders of rock and roll they were influenced by Rosetta Tharp and uh learning about her and learning about how influential she really was was really really exciting to me just because I love rock music and she's also known for her gospel music which is also another super passionate and exciting genre to listen to so um I would love just to like dive in about her Um, So Sister Rosetta Tharp was born March 20th in 1915 as Rosetta Newbin in a town called Cotton Plant, Arkansas, to parents Katie Bell Newbin and Willis Atkins. Um, While we know that both of her parents were cotton pickers, not much is really known about her father Willis. Uh, We do, however, know that he was an exceptionally talented singer, and a lot of people think that 
um, Rosetta got a lot of her natural talent from her father. Um, Katie Bell, her mother, was also musically inclined. Uh, She was a singer, and she also played the mandolin. Katie devoted much of her life to the Church of God in Christ, which has which had been founded by Charles Harrison, uh, Charles Harrison Mason, a black Pentecostal bishop who loved incorporating music and dancing in church and encouraged women especially to teach and sing in church because I think he found they were just more energetic and more compelling to listen to. Katie was known for being fearless and proud, and she encouraged her young daughter to find joy and faith in her singing during a time when she herself would even sit outside and play for passersby in attempts to convert them to her church. (laughs) So she was definitely like, you know, we want to embrace you with this music and with this joy that we feel in our faith. And she definitely instilled that in Rosetta, which I think, you know, no matter what your faith is, I think that that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's beautiful. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, let's see, where was I? Inspired by her mother's passion, Rosetta began singing and playing guitar as, uh, uh, as little Rosetta Newbin when she was only four years old. Uh, she was called a musical prodigy and a singing and guitar playing miracle. Dang. Mm-hmm. Four I mean, years old. That's I didn't even. so little. I, I don't even think I had full control of my arms when I was four. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even think I was speaking in complete sentences yet when I was four. <laughs> yeah, I was definitely more of a look at this rock I found kind of child. <laughs> uh, when she was six, Rosetta began traveling with her mother in, in an evangelical group, and the group would perform a sort of gospel concert throughout the South, like this traveling show. Uh, Rosetta and Katie eventually left uh, Katie's husband, Willis, and moved from Arkansas to Chicago, where they performed regularly for the Church of God in Christ in the city. During this time, there was also a large influx of Black Southerners migrating north, and they brought blues from Mississippi and jazz from New Orleans to Chicago, two distinct types of music that Rosetta fell in love with and began to tie into her own style of gospel singing. So she really got these like different influences just from you know, the other communities that would kind of develop around her. Yeah. Uh, so obviously, while Rosetta was growing up, it wasn't easy to become a, a popular guitarist if you were a young black woman. But Rosetta's youth and talent began making waves in the quote unquote gospel scene. She was kind of thrust into the world of church and music and seemed to be completely thriving in it. Her talent and precociousness charmed the church audiences which I think, I think I could have just said congregation. I think that means the same thing. Uh, and she would actually, during her performances, she would run back and forth from the guitar to the piano on stage to accompany the singing that would erupt while she performed. Like, her energy was just off the charts. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, like, child performers just have that innate ability to, like, inspire everyone, I think. And yeah. I, th- I think that she definitely loved it early on. Um, When she was 19, Rosetta married the preacher Thomas Thorpe, um, and friends of Rosetta said that even though she seemed glad to be married, she didn't seem entirely happy in her marriage. The rumor among the congregations were that Thomas sought to use Rosetta to make his own sermons more popular, and he was said to have maintained a very old-fashioned view of the relationships between husbands and wives while while using Rosetta as sort of a meal ticket. So he obviously recognized how popular and how important she was to the scene. And he was probably like, yeah, well, if I marry her, then I'll have dominion over that entire part of, of that. Yeah. Ugh. Which isn't surprising, but no. it's still disappointing. <laughs> um, fortunately, their marriage did not last long. They got a divorce four years later, and Rosetta left Thomas and moved with her mother to New York. 
Um, even though the marriage didn't last long, she performed under that name, under, uh, she adopted a version of her ex-husband's last name as her stage name, Sister Rosetta Tharp, and performed under that name for the rest of her life. Which I, I just wonder how her ex-husband felt about that. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really funny that she, it's almost like a smack in the face. It's like, you wanted, you know, you wanted me to be associated with your name, and I'm going to change your name just enough so that it's no longer associated with you. <laughs> exactly. I love it. Uh, we stand. Um, <laughs> when she was booking performances at New York clubs, uh, she was dismayed early on because the songs the club owners would give her to sing made no mention of God and faith, which were obviously very important to her, and were instead focused on the idea of pleasing her man, which is found in tons of music from that era. Her fans mourned the loss of faith-based lyrics, and it turned out Rosetta did as well. She wanted to find a way that she could embrace and celebrate her faith while also pursuing show business in a secular world, so she decided then to start defying convention. When she was 23, Rosetta recorded an album under Decca Records, which was a collection of gospel songs backed by a jazz orchestra. These were the first gospel songs recorded by Decca, and all four of the first recordings became massive hits, establishing Rosetta as a music sensation and one of the first commercially successful gospel recording artists. Uh, One of the songs in, in particular, Rock Me, influenced a ton of rock and roll singers, including Elvis Presley, Little Richard, and Jerry Lee Lewis. She would jam with Duke Ellington and Cab Cab Calloway, and at age 25, she was named one of the most popular musicians of the day, which I would have never thought that a gospel singer would be counted among the greats, which is fantastic. And yeah, and it's a a tragedy that I've never heard of her, Mm -hmm. that she was so popular in in her day that, but that she's kind of gone into obscurity since then. Yeah. It's sad. Yeah. It is really sad. Um, So because of these changes she was making, the church community was initially shocked at the music she was recording. Gospel-based lyrics with the secular music was considered pretty controversial, and the fact that Rosetta began performing in nightclubs and along jazz musicians and dancers raised more than a few eyebrows. Uh, some of the super conservative circles actually lost interest in Rosetta because of these this, because of these settings she would be booked in, especially when Rosetta would sing gospel songs while surrounded by nearly nude showgirls, which to me just sounds like a fun time. <laughs> it, but... it does. It does. <laughs> uh, when Rosetta began touring and headlining shows, she was able to choose acts she'd perform with. Along with some extremely talented black quartets and groups, Rosetta also invited a group of white men called the Jordanaires to perform with her, a notion that was extremely taboo in these times of segregation, because obviously that's what our country was going through at the time. She actually referred to the members of the Jordanaires as her four little white babies, <laughs> and she, she wouldn't tell her booking agents that they were white, uh, because they would the booking agents probably wouldn't have been accepting of it. Mm -hmm. But uh, they were talented enough that once they got on stage and started performing, that they were able to win the crowds over. That's amazing. Yeah, so they toured with her for for a long time. Uh, Around this time, Rosetta began receiving a lot of backhanded compliments about her talent. She was often told she could play guitar like a man and was seen as a novelty when she would take part in guitar guitar battles at the Apollo. Because, you know, a woman playing the guitar? Well, Mm. hmm. How very manlike. <laughs> Gotta find some way to make her feel bad about it. Exactly. Uh, however, she didn't let that slow her down, and she ended up being one of only two gospel artists who recorded specifically for troops overseas during World War II. Wow. But, yeah, black soldiers were segregated from their white compatriots, and the fact that they could claim Rosetta as one of their own and become inspired by her music greatly and obviously improved troop morale. Mm-hmm. 
1944, the song Strange Things Happening Every Day, which Rosetta recorded with Decca's house pianist Sammy Price, became the first gospel song to appear on Billboard's Harlem Hit Parade. The record has gone down in history as being called the first rock and roll record. The song itself expressed some of the ironies she was experiencing, being a black woman at a time after the war, where the U.S. was claiming there was prosperity for all. She was a star, but she still couldn't stay in certain hotels or eat at certain restaurants. That reminds me so much of Josephine Baker. Yeah, I was I was just thinking that. Yeah. Uh, her friends, the Jordanaires, would actually have to go eat without her and without her and her black crew, and they would have to bring their leftovers and extra food back to the tour bus for her, even though she wow. had her own tour bus. She was that successful. Um, during this period of fame and trying to make it in a segregated country, Rosetta went through a second unhappy marriage, which I couldn't really find a lot of details in, but obviously it didn't stick because she had numerous affairs with both men and women without ever entering into a relationship that really stuck during this time. Uh, in 1946, however, she met a talented singer named Marie Knight, and after seeing Marie perform, Rosetta asked her to team up, and the two recorded and put out the hit song Up Above My Head. They were two black women who could make it on the road together without accompaniment. Rosetta could play the guitar and piano, and Marie could play percussion and piano, and of course they could both sing. Their collective talent made them an unstoppable force that didn't have to, ha have to compromise values for their popularity. Marie and Rosetta took a huge risk by traveling without male chaperones, but it was a risk they both took regularly. According to their friends at the time, the two were actually lovers, something that was considered an open secret in the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. However, all the sources that I found on that say that it's, you know, a rumor. Um, it was widely accepted to be true, but uh, as far as I know, both Rosetta and Marie denied it. So mm -hmm. take, take that, you know, how yeah. you will. Um, tragically, right around this time, Marie's mother and two small children died in a house fire oh, and caused no. Marie to drift away from both her fame and from Rosetta, leaving Rosetta on her own. Less than a year after the two split, however, this is wild, publicists came to Rosetta with an idea for an outrageous publicity stunt. They wanted to have another wedding of Rosetta Tharp, this time taking place in Griffith Stadium in Washington. They would sell tickets for 25,000 fans to attend and sell the recording rights to Decca Studios. So they basically wanted to throw her a wedding concert thing. Yeah, interesting. While that's, she was single. Yeah, that's, I'm trying to parse that. I'm trying to, like, where did that idea come yeah. from? Who pitched that idea? And like, <laughs> It's the, what time was this? The 40s? It's the 40s. That's, that's like, <laughs> it's the 40s. It's, the, it's like, didn't we just, we had something similar recently happen with, like, a, there was some sort of YouTube scandal that happened with, like, some YouTubers, like, oh, pretending yeah. to get married. And, like, it, like it, that's, it's, it's not so modern of a, of a problem, I guess. People were trying to pull this stunt back in the... <laughs> as right. early as the 40s yeah so yeah you're right i hadn't even thought i think it was like one of the paul brothers i think who who was involved but whatever i'm old i don't i don't get it <laughs> um, but yeah you're right like that's so funny that that's still like a publicity thing uh and that it was back then so rosetta surprisingly agreed to go along with this plan but had no clue on who she actually wanted to marry <laughs> so just weeks before the wedding rosetta found a man named russell morrison who is a musician who offered to be both her third husband and her manager oh wow well two for sounds, one sounds kind of sketchy it does <laughs> yeah uh they recorded their real wedding ceremony and a concert afterwards featuring sister rosetta tharp and the rosettes and the guests even brought wedding gifts for the couple so people wow. who bought tickets brought gifts for them <laughs> well i guess that's a i guess that's a win-win for 
Rosetta. It would be it, the weirdest it, wedding. <laughs> it would be it would be very strange, but a good way to get some stuff crossed off your wish list. That's true. <laughs> um, so her new husband, Russell, very quickly swooped into the business side of things regarding Rosetta's career, and it became very clear that he was both living off her talent and cheating on her, which I saw coming. I think we all did. Yeah. Um, her friends and family, including including Marie Knight, hated him. Despite the troubles, Rosetta and Russell remained married for the next 22 years. Wow. So, yeah. I don't, and I don't know. She seems like she seems like she has such a strong personality. I don't know if she really fell in love with him and was okay with him or or what. But it's just so strange to me that, you know, if, if everyone knew that he was having affairs, I'm sure she did too. But maybe that's just part of show business in her yeah. mind. That's so weird. That's so interesting. I feel that mm-hmm. there's definitely more to that story because you know she you know her first the, her first husband she left almost right away their marriage yeah. was so short-lived and this person that ch- kind of came into her life extremely at random conveniently <laughs> for, for pu- <laughs> yeah and for publicity no less that she stuck stuck it out for so long that's interesting yeah it is uh so during this time rock and roll started becoming more and more influenced by the black spiritual gospel music feel everyone from elvis to buddy holly was inspired by both the genre in general and specifically by the way rosetta would rock out on the guitar it said that if you watch early videos of elvis presley performing it's very clear that he was almost channeling rosetta's sound and style Mm. which i you know after having watched some of her videos i definitely believe that Her influence crept in through all areas of rock and roll, and by the 50s, all the known rock and roll idols were young white men, and Rosetta, who didn't change her style or her taste, started unfortunately going out of fashion. She and Russell, along with Rosetta's mother Katie, had to move to a small home in Philadelphia, and they began getting getting comfortable slipping kind of out of the spotlight. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, like, you know, behind every great white man in music is probably a black woman. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I, it makes a sense. lot of truth to that. Yeah, I think so. Uh, in 1957, however, one of Rosetta's biggest fans and famous jazz trombonist Chris Barber booked Rosetta to go on tour with them for a month in, in Europe. Um, even though Rosetta was booked mostly as a novelty act, she completely stole the show because they were going overseas and most of the fans who were there had never had a chance to ever see her live. They only knew what they could hear from recordings. Um she became kind of like a star reborn because of this, which was awesome. That is awesome. Like, <laughs> how Sorry, dare my, they? <laughs> my, my insulation foam just fell over. <laughs> <laughs> like, how dare they book her as a novelty act? Which yeah, I know. Basically, formed an entire musical genre, right? By a man who who claimed to be one of her biggest fans. Yeah, God. Hmm. Uh, and yeah, it's super lame. Um, In 1964, when she was 49, Rosetta was booked for a folk and blues gospel special alongside Muddy Waters. And this is really cool because you can find the video on YouTube of this. The venue was an unused railway station outside of Manchester. So they had, you know, the train tracks. And then on one platform, they had the audience. And on the other platform, they had the performers. That's cool. Yeah. And in in the footage of it, it's really cool because Rosetta comes rolling up in like a horse-drawn carriage and, you know, like, grabs her guitar out of, like, a barrel that's just sitting there. And, like, this... Because I think they made it look kind of old-timey. Mm-hmm. And she kicked ass. Like, she... And she was 49. So it's like, okay, she still clearly had it. Yeah. Oh, my God. I love that. Yeah. I, I kind of think of that performance as, like, her... Her... I don't want to say farewell. Because she, she performed after that. But it was probably 
the performance that a lot of people know of when they think of of Rosetta Tharp. Um, so it's it was just a really great moment, I think, for her. Uh, in 1968, Rosetta's mother and constant companion Katie Bell passed away. The loss was really hard on Rosetta because her mom had been with her and living with her pretty much her entire life, yeah. uh, you know, cheering her on and encouraging her. Um, and while Rosetta was dealing with the depression that followed after her mother's death, she also received a diabetes diagnosis. Ugh. Yeah, so it's like, you know, you, she couldn't get a break after that, unfortunately. Yeah. Um there's, a, there's footage of a performance uh, in 1970, her last performance, which she dedicated to her mother. And she has this really beautiful speech about losing someone and, you know, having them wait for you in heaven, which was really wow. tear jerking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, she she ended up passing away from a stroke in 1970. But there's this little story that I heard from a friend of hers in this. I, I got a lot of this information from a BBC4 documentary. And one of her friends told this story that I loved. Um, Rosetta eventually was bedridden because she had to have uh, one of her legs am- amputated due to complications of diabetes. Mm. And her friend was visiting her and Rosetta told him, I'm not going to tell anybody when I'm coming back, but I'm coming back. And I think I think in that context, she meant that, you know, she was going to recover and she was going to get back on stage. But I kind of love thinking of that as like, somehow she will return to us on earth, yeah. <laughs> you know? And, you know, I, I, being as religious as she is, I doubt she really believed in reincarnation, but I, I personally really like thinking of that because I think that some of the beauty she brought is definitely still prevalent in the music we're, we're listening to today. Yeah. Um, and then several years after she passed away, actually in 2008, the governor of Philadelphia proclaimed uh, January 11th as Sister Rosetta Tharp Day. Uh, in an attempt, I think, to kind of bring her back into the public memory and to make sure that people understand how important she was in her style and in her energy. And I just, like, I totally fell in love with her while I was watching footage of her singing, and I just have a total crush on her. <laughs> oh, my God. She she sounds absolutely incredible. I'm Now I'm going to have to go and lis- listen to everything that she's ever made oh yeah <laughs> like, i can't i can't wait to hear what she sounds like and to mm-hmm. listen to her music and feel her energy because she sounds like a a force to be reckoned with for sure yeah well and i just love thinking because how many how many musicians today would say that they've been influenced by early you know elvis muddy waters other you know blues jazz rock and roll singers and they were all kind of from rosetta's influence like she kind of developed her own style of music Mm -hmm. by blending all these things that she fell in love with at such a young age and I just think that that's incredible and I I wish more people knew where where these things come from and where these sounds come from yeah absolutely I definitely wish that she had more recognition I'm so glad that you brought her on the show today because I'm I'm happy to now know of her because she definitely deserves you know all of the credit where credit mm-hmm. is due, you know, because you're right. You know, all of these people who, you know, I, I, I know that Elvis and the and others, his other contemporaries, have been accused of, you know, stealing, <laughs> like just blatantly stealing from black artists. Oh, for from sure. That time, and it's just it's it is tragic that you know these incredibly like ingenious black artists just kind of got raked over the coals by and like kind of just went into obscurity for 
you know, and that their skill was their in art craft was forgotten. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, definitely not what they deserve. It's definitely not what Rosetta deserves. So I'm very glad to be talking about her today. Yeah, she she's just such an inspiration in terms of the fact that she literally spent her entire life performing and and loving it and making it work for her. And I just I think that that's really cool. And, you know, I wish we had a solid answer about whether or not she was bisexual, just because I think that that would be really cool. It's also none of my business. But, you know, I I don't want to say she's like a bisexual icon without having evidence of it. Mm -hmm. But um, I just I love that she defied convention her entire life. I think that that is so cool. Yeah. She changed music forever. That's absolutely just the coolest. Yeah. And I I also thought when I was writing these notes up that this is the second person I've talked about where Elvis has made like a little cameo in like the background because he had also tried buying Dolly Parton's music from her. (laughs) And like Elvis pops up again. (laughs) Elvis and his career of thievery. His wily ways. (laughs) All right. Well, with that, should we take a small break and then... uh, Get a couple refills, pop open this truly, pour another glass of wine. Yeah, sounds fantastic. All right, and we will hear from our friends. Well, we'll hear us talk about Anchor. (laughs) All right, we'll be right back. (laughs) All right. One, two, three, four. (laughs) And we are back. (laughs) Sorry, we're having, we're still trying to figure out how to sync up our mics, so... I might keep that in. It's it's a work in progress. It's we we the way that we do it is we have like we we do a count off, but I don't know when we're supposed to stop. I like I feel four feels like a good place to stop to stop. But I feel like we're supposed to stop at three. Oh, okay. but I don't know. Is is four is four right? Was I right? Uh, you're you're good. I always thought okay. it was four. Okay, okay, <laughs> we're on the same page then. All right. Anyway. That's really funny. Oh boy. So we are back. We've got our refills, and uh, it is Michaela's turn to take us to Crush Corner. I'm super excited about this one. I am very excited to be sharing this individual with you guys today. So. I'm going to be talking about just an incredibly beautiful and absolute triumph of a soul, American writer and trans activist uh, Lou Sullivan, who was most active during the 70s and 80s. Uh, He was beloved for the counsel, guidance, and community he provided to trans men around the world. And he was also among the very first openly gay trans men during a time when the medical community largely denied the very existence of such an identity. And as a result, Lou is credited credited with significantly shaping our current understanding of sexual orientation and gender identity as being separate constructs. Um, He was above all a people person and loved with his whole being. Sadly, he was taken from us too soon in 1991 from complications with AIDS. Nevertheless, Lou used his diagnosis as fuel to power his activism and committed himself to creating a better world for his community until his dying day. But as, yeah, but as always, we're going to rewind and start from the very beginning. Take care. So Lou grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and was the third child of six in a very Catholic household. He he began keeping a journal at around age 11, which he wrote in extensively, and he would continue to do this for his entire life. 
And so these journals have actually been archived and edited by uh, Ellis Martin and Zach Ozma, and they were published actually in 2019 under the title, uh, We Both Laughed in Pleasure, The Selected Diaries of Lou Sullivan. And it's estimated that only about a quarter of Lou's diary entries ended up in the in, in the final manuscript, wow. um, which is incredible. Like this man wrote so prolifically about his life and uh it essentially, you know, it makes his one of the most rigorously documented personal accounts of a trans person in history. And it's absolutely an, a gorgeous, gorgeous book. I, I started reading it this week and I'm not quite done with it, but it is so raw and unfiltered because it's obviously, you know, journal entries. And so there's almost this like voyeuristic sense when you're reading it and mm -hmm. which would make you feel like a voyeur except for the fact that Lou completely intended to have these published um just he just didn't get around to it in his lifetime but it was his dream to actually have his journals published in a book um but it basically the book charts the progress of Lou discovering his sexual orientation and gender identity throughout childhood and well into his person and as well as his personal reflections throughout his transition and activism and it's it's really really good i highly recommend it and what's very you know beautiful about this particular you know collection of journals is the editors um Zach and Ellis they were very you know, they had a vision for how they wanted to tell Lou's story, and they really wanted to center Lou's, like, pleasure and euphoria and the joy that he experienced throughout his life, because it's so often that trans narratives are kind of marred in tragedy, and they didn't want that, because for the most part, he lived an extremely exuberant and beautiful life, and so they really wanted that to be apparent and it's and you do get that throughout the book it's so it's so good that's excellent um, that they yeah. that they chose to kind of highlight the celebrations that mm -hmm. happened within his life rather yeah. than the hardships that we all know even if we don't know firsthand we all know that trans individuals have to go through so i think yeah. that that was that, that was an excellent way to honor both his wish of having these published and to honor his memory yeah, for for sure. Um, so we know from Lou's journals that he experienced dissatisfaction with the gender he was assigned to at birth, even at age 11. He took tremendous joy in what he called uh, playing boys, quote unquote, with his sisters, in which they all dressed up as their favorite male icons. For Lou, it was often his first heartthrob, Paul McCartney from the Beatles. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> While his sisters eventually moved away from the dress up games and comfortably stepped into womanhood, Lou continued to play with his gender presentation for much of his childhood. Even at a young age, he expressed in his journals how badly he wanted to be a boy. And while he grappled with his gender identity throughout his childhood, Lou never questioned his sexual orientation, as he loved boys pretty much since day one. Mm -hmm. Although he could never quite explain why he was exclusively attracted to gay men, and that was something that he struggled with a lot while he was trying to grow up, because it he had no words for the feelings that he felt, and it, it was endlessly frustrating for him. Um, and it wouldn't be until later when he immersed himself in the study of gender theory that he would realize that it was because he was a gay man himself. Um, but throughout his adolescence and early adulthood, um, this was a point of a lot of anguish. Oh, I, I yeah. can't even imagine. Yeah. I mean, even, I mean, granted now, information is more readily available for those who really do want to explore gender identity. But 
it's still hard to find credible sources for a lot of that. And so I, it must have taken a lot of diving into gender theory studies for him to figure that out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because there really wasn't, there wasn't a lot of literature available um, specifically, and I'll get into this a little bit later, but specifically for trans men, there was really not a whole lot of publicity given to trans men. Trans women, and I feel like it's still a little bit this way today, where trans women have a little bit more uh, publicity than trans men do. Um, And it was kind of the same for Lou, where he saw these examples of trans women, but didn't necessarily know too much about trans men, and absolutely knew nothing about gay trans men. And Mm so uh, he really had no representation to look to, to truly understand himself. Um, So in high school, he was shy and a bit of a reclusive bookworm, but after graduation, he more fully stepped into himself and began to feel more comfortable presenting as male on a regular basis. And his family was actually extremely supportive of his decision, which is so refreshing. (laughs) It's refreshing. (laughs) It's so refreshing. You know, one day he was... And they were were Catholic, right? Yeah, yeah. They were were very Catholic, but it's actually... They were very progressive for the time and for their for their beliefs because actually even before Lou began uh, his transition, his mom, I I can't remember how old he was at the time, but they were like, you're old enough now to decide if you want to be Catholic or not. And Lou decided he didn't want to be Catholic. And I think this was at some point throughout his teenage years, but they actually, you know, allowed him the choice of whether or not he was going to remain Catholic. And so his family... They were great. That is, that is extremely progressive for, yeah. for the time and for now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Good for them. Yeah. Um, so one day when he was reading an article about a trans person who had recently undergone a sex reassignment surgery, he casually mentioned it to his mother as sort of like a temperature check to see how she would respond. And her response, her response was positive. And she even admitted that if she had known that such a procedure existed, she might have done it herself early in her life. <laughs> um, and it led them to having a very open discussion. And Lou felt a huge sense of relief, which encouraged him even more to pursue living as a man. Aww. And his family unprompted began using male pronouns when referring to him, which just makes my heart so happy. <laughs> that's so necessary. You know, I mean, yeah. that's that's so necessary. So it's, I am like, I get, I get chills when I think about, you know, being in a position where you have no idea if you will lose your family over who you are as a person. Yeah. And, you know, realizing that they not only still love you, but are encouraging you to pursue, who, like, becoming who you are and and, yeah. and helping with that like that is so refreshing and it's so inspiring yeah it really really is and actually this in his fan he had a brother and i can't remember if it's his older or younger brother but his uh brother ended up being uh non-binary later in life as oh, well wow. and so their their family was just so open and so amazing and i'm so glad that both lou and his brother were able to have that kind of environment and support Mm -hmm. system that's awesome Um, yeah um but eventually he uh grew out he outgrew milwaukee and ended up moving to san francisco to start medically pursuing his transition um unfortunately his path to receiving hormones and gender affirming surgery was fraught with ignorance and ineptitude on the part of the medical field. Now, Shocker. for 
Yeah, so for context, (laughs) this was the 1970s and 80s, a time when homosexuality had just recently been removed from the DSM as a mental disorder, mostly because conversion therapy had proved largely ineffective. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) as always with progress, it's one step forward and two steps back as homosexuality actually became a contraindicator for some... uh, the so-called mental affliction of transsexualism. Mm. Um, So in other words, according to the prevailing theory at the time, it was impossible to be both gay and trans simultaneously. So they would not treat you, they would not give you hormones if you expressed that you, you know, were interested in, you know, the same sex. Mm -hmm. And it's it's incredibly frustrating. Yeah, I so feel, it's, well, and just the fact that people conflate sexuality with gender identity, even still to this day, it's not surprising that that's where the medical field hit a wall and was like, yeah. oh, I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and it's like, and it goes without saying that homophobia played a huge role in shaping that belief, because gender dysphoria, as we know it, wasn't really understood or well-documented at the time, and doctors thought that they were being actually very altruistic and progressive by helping gay people live quote-unquote straight lives by performing sex reassignment surgery. And so their thought mostly was like, why would I help you transition if you're just going to turn out gay? And like that was like, (laughs) (laughs) that was largely how doctors thought at the time. And, you know, Lou was certainly not the first gay trans man to exist, hardly, but because of medical discrimination, it's kind of assumed that most gay men up until this point, most gay trans men up until this point simply lied (laughs) about their sexual (laughs) activities to get the treatments and care that they needed. Um, Unfortunately, uh, you know, this ended up inadvertently reinforcing the prevailing medical literature that trans men didn't or couldn't exist Mm -hmm. because they'd never they didn't see them so they're like well you know this is what a trans person likes looks like this is what the textbooks say and it and we're it's it's being confirmed for us um but also it's you you have to do what you have to do in order to get the care that you need yeah um so lou however you know refused to lie about his sexual orientation and which is a quality that i admire deeply about him and it's something that i got from his journals was that he lived completely unapologetically and like genuinely and truly loved himself and had so much respect for himself that he refused to be ashamed of his sexual identity um and unfortunately that made things really difficult for him (laughs) (laughs) in terms of getting you know starting his medical transition and so he was refused hormones and srs multiple times um Thankfully, however, he eventually was granted access to the hormones and surgery he needed to fully move through the world the way he always wanted to. Um, But tragically, he was diagnosed with AIDS shortly after completing his SRS. And although he felt incredibly frustrated and mad, you know, he took a certain almost perverse pride in informing gender clinics that that the gender clinic specifically that had refused him his surgeries um and he made he went out of his way to write to them to let him know of his diagnosis and basically told them you know you didn't think i could live as a gay man but it looks like i'm gonna die like one wow and that was <laughs> the sass. it's it, it was very sassy and but that was that was a sentiment that he ended up sharing often like in later in his life where he like it his diagnosis was tragic for him and it was endlessly frustrating but he also 
it was also for him almost a way that his it like confirmed what he knew about himself in this very perverse way and he felt like he could take ownership of it in that way Mm -hmm. um but he also used it as like as the springboard to pretty much launch his activism i mean throughout his life he was always an avid activist um he you know as a you know when in his younger years he protested the vietnam war participated in the civil rights movement in the late 1960s but after the discrimination he experienced with doctors he adamantly lobbied the american psychiatric association to recognize the existence of gay trans men um and you know because at the time as i previously mentioned there was no visibility of gay trans men (laughs) and so lou kind of it took until his mid-20s to finally meet another trans man. Um, and his he was another trans rights pioneer. His name was Stephen Dane, um, who kind of became a mentor to Lou. And really, at the time of them meeting, really made Lou feel like he was seen for the very first time. Or in the sense that like he really understood who he was or that he had a place and a name for, for what and who he was. And... You know, and because of this experience, because of how powerful it was meeting Stephen Dane, like Lou understood the importance of being a visible trans man. And so he made himself as vocal and accessible as possible to others in the community. And he ended up speaking at many public events um, and became, you know, a counselor to, you know, guide trans youth as they navigated their transition. And he kind of slowly just ended up building this network of trans men. And it was just this very, very beautiful thing because it was something that hadn't really existed (laughs) up until that point or not in a very tangible way. And so the fact that he was able to bring all of these trans men together and he's largely responsible for for laying the groundwork for, you know, the trans community that we see today. And so he's such an influential activist in that right even though his life was so tragically short-lived um he ended up publishing the very first guidebook for trans men um, which provided information such as what to expect from hormone therapy and other such medical advice um, which was invaluable to you know his community um he was also a founding member of the glbt historical society in san francisco which was the first full-scale standalone museum of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people in, in the history of the United States, <laughs> wow. which was pretty cool. And it and as of 2016, it was still only one of three established museums in the world dedicated solely to the history of LGBTQ people, <laughs> which is just wild to think about. That is wild. Um, yeah. Um, but so the archive of his of all of his diaries in in pretty much their original form can be found still at the uh, GLBT Historical Society in San Francisco, which I think would be so cool to see to just like see his actual handwritten journals. Um, that would be that's such a cool thing to to that he kept up with that his entire life is so cool to me. Yeah, yeah, it was like almost a daily practice and he was also such a a great writer it's like he wasn't writing for an audience later in life he was because he knew he wanted to tell his story someday but as a child and adolescent and early adult like he didn't know that these would one day have an audience but 
when you read it, it reads like it. this was always the intention. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very cool. Um, and that. yeah, um, in June of 2019, um, Lou was one of 50 American pioneers inducted on the National LGBTQ Wall of Honor within the Stonewall National Monument in New York City. Um, and in August 2019, uh, he was one of the honorees inducted into the Rainbow Honor Walk, um, a walk of fame in San Francisco's Castro neighborhood, noting LGBTQ people who have made significant co- significant contributions in their field. And uh, he, he, he just lived such an incredible life. And, you know, as I conclude, you know, this section, I do want to encourage you all to pick up his 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 you know the edited anthology of his journals which is again titled we both laughed in pleasure the selected diaries of lou sullivan edited by zach ozma and ellis martin it's delightful and as well as the uh biography um lou sullivan daring to be a man among men which is written by uh bryce d smith and both of those sources will be able to do way more justice to lou's life than i ever could in this short in this short format and so i i highly highly recommend it and uh yeah that is that is the life of lou sullivan oh my god what an icon yeah i'm definitely adding uh both of those to my to read pile just because it's the fact that the fact that he that the editors who compiled his journals didn't focus on the bleak aspects of trying to survive and 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 thrive as a trans man especially in a time where we were dealing as you know with the AIDS crisis as a country um that's going to be I think very compelling and uh I'm sure there's moments in it that are going to be emotional but I'm sure there's also going to be a lot of joy to be found and I think that that is something that we don't see a lot of in in books with trans representation uh, so I'm definitely going to be checking those out. That the, they sound fascinating. Yeah, they they really are, and there is like there's there's a lot to be you know there's there is a lot there's just a lot of emotion. They're just such a it's his journals are filled with his unadulterated emotions throughout oh, sure. his life, and and but like it's just it is a very very joyful overall a very joyful book, and uh, I can't I, believe I've never heard of him before. Yeah. Yeah, like he he is so he he played such a huge role in in shaping what we what is now, you know, the trans community and our understanding of, you know, sexual orientation and gender as being two separate constructs, which now, you know, in our contemporary understanding of, you know, gender and sexual identity, it makes more sense now to us and it's more, you know, readily accepted and understood, but back then it was like those two things were inextricable yeah. and you know he played such a huge role in in helping to unpack that and it's it's amazing i i really love the fact that he was just kind of willing to to make himself and the knowledge he had completely available to any other trans person specifically you know with with the whole like here's what to expect when you start hormone therapy like that is so valuable and just such an important thing that he did for the community and and for anyone who is struggling with gender identity or trying to because i'm sure like i i don't know what it's like going through uh, you know hormone replacement therapy but i'm sure that if i did i would have so many questions and so many concerns and these changes that aren't necessarily always discussed so the fact that he was 
so open about it. Like, he didn't have to do that, you know? <laughs> no. But he did it anyway. Yeah. And and I think that it, he just was so aware of how of, of his, how he struggled throughout his life and that, you know, just wishing that he had that information available to him when he was going through the same thing. And I absolutely love it. And, you know, he played such a huge role in just carving out space for trans men in general because there, I can't remember what the name of the organization he was a part of in San Francisco when he first moved there, uh, but it was a trans community, but it was largely geared more toward trans women and... Because, again, there really wasn't a community for trans men at the time. They obviously existed, but there just wasn't really a community built for them then. And Lou played such a huge role in shaping and creating that. And I just really got to hand it to him. What a gift to the world. Yeah. But, Thank you so yeah. much for bringing him. Absolutely. It's my pleasure feels so good to be back in our regular format. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it definitely does. Talking about people that we love and admire, finding new people. Oh, it's my favorite thing. <laughs> but well, speaking of our regular format, do you know what comes next? Oh, yeah. Infatuation Station. Infatuation Station. Uh, you go first. <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> so, okay, I'm somehow both ashamed and yet completely <laughs> it's a good way to start <laughs> and and yet completely shameless that my infatuation station today is the mobile game seven deadly sins grand cross you've been based... playing that since march <laughs> i know it's definitely not a new addition to my uh, repertoire by any means but it's the first time i've had a chance to talk about it on the show <laughs> tell me about <laughs> and it so so obviously for so it's based on the manga and anime of the same name seven deadly sins and the the irony is that i'm not even a huge fan of the show like the show is just okay like our household kind of got into it months ago like actually no like wait this was pre-covid times that we were watching the show and it was kind of just like a like junk tv that we would watch and be like oh this is just very light and fun and not good necessarily <laughs> um <laughs> um but then they came out with this like really good and really immersive mobile game which is like this really it's an art it's basically an rpg game and has all of the trappings of an rpg game so all of the characters from the show are in it and all of them have different stats and you can build them up with all these different equipments and they all have different skills that you can like play around with and it's a battling game so like it's and as well as a quest game so you can verse other people and like move up through the ranks as well as like move through the story and so like there are so many things that you can do in the game that it's it's basically like you're, you're never bored playing it because they keep coming out with like new things that you can do so i i take great pleasure in it because it gives me a sense of accomplishment <laughs> like yeah. if i if like if i feel like i haven't accomplished a lot that day i can like go into seven deadly sins and like see how like buff my characters are <laughs> and be like well i did that so there's something yeah but i <laughs> that counts yeah so it's it's definitely it's definitely been something and you know i guess i should i should say also that you know the reason why this game i i love this game so much is that and why it's 
still special to me, even though it's like based on just a silly show, um, is that it really, I started playing it right at the beginning of like COVID panic when I was just so overwhelmed by what was going on. And this was something that was completely immersive and like when I was playing it I was not thinking about anything else Mm -hmm. and so I could just like go in for a couple of hours and just pretend like nothing else existed and it was it's and it's wonderful so that's awesome that's 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 my infatuation station for this week (laughs) (laughs) I think that's great I mean the thing I think that's fantastic to see that mobile gaming has really stepped up in the last couple years and they've kind of develop their own culture and their own spot among like other gaming platforms because it's a it's a legitimate form of video game play and i think Mm -hmm. that you know if you can find something that you know you can just pick up when you need to feel productive and have a little bit of fun with without having super you know without having everything emotionally invested in it i think that that's awesome yeah yeah for sure but what is your infatuation station for this week um Okay, you actually, Michaela, you already know about this one because I've talked to you about it before, but my my infatuation station is the series by Mackenzie Lee, author of Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue and The Lady's Guide to Petticoats and Piracy. Okay, so I, I don't remember if I've talked about this on the show, but I'm trying to read 50 books this year, and uh, I just finished book 36, I think, But I read Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue a couple months ago and the follow-up, Lady's Guide to Petticoats and Piracy, and they have been the best books that I have read this year, hands down. Like, and I, I did not think a YA series could really suck me in the way that these books did, but I am in love with them. (laughs) Like... These books have, I feel like Stefan from SNL when I say this, but these books have everything. (laughs) (laughs) So it's got, I just, I recently, yesterday actually, I recommended the series to someone on Facebook and to kind of quote what I said then, I'm like, we've got characters of color, we've got characters with disability, we've got LGBTQ plus representation, we have, uh, you know, a bisexual character who exists without bi erasure. We have a, a most likely asexual character. Oh, we've right. got magic. We've got pirates. We've got Indiana Jones esque adventure. We like it's so good. <laughs> and the audiobooks are narrated by, um, I think his name is Christian Coulson, and he's the actor who played. Tom Riddle in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets back in the day. Oh, uh-huh. So the audiobooks are phenomenal. He sounds very sexy. And the books have just enough, like, fluff in them to make them, like, just really entertaining and make all the characters shippable. But I am (laughs) totally obsessed with this series, and I cannot stop thinking about them. (laughs) It's, it's, oh my gosh. I know, I, I do remember you telling me about this, and every time... I hear you talk about it. I just want to read it so bad. They sound like such a treat. Like they sound like candy, just candy of books. And I really, I really dig that. Yeah, they're they're so good. And one of my favorite things, because the first book was probably my favorite, just because I love the protagonist so much. Um, but the second book has a female protagonist, and in within that book, without any spoilers, there's a fantastic conversation about women cutting each other down and doing the whole I'm not like other girls thing and the damage that that actually does to building female friendships and how it makes it more difficult to 
to, to form female friendships. And it's just like hearing that conversation said by like two women who are trying to rob a museum at the time. Like, it's just like, <laughs> it's so entertaining and so thoughtful uh, that I just like Mackenzie Lee, the author is, I think she's 28 or 29 years old. She's a little bit younger than me. And she has just created this fantastic world with these fantastic characters and i cannot recommend these books enough oh they sound like such a delight oh my gosh the third one's coming out sometime soon Ooh, Mm -hmm. i'm gonna have to start before that happens yes yeah there's actually and one of my favorite little factoids about these book series is that there was so much fan art and fan fiction after the first two books that Mackenzie Lee actually went back and wrote a novella that's just fluff. Like it's just fluff and it's canon and like in Oh the, my god. Yeah, in the dedication uh, for it, she says something along the lines of thank you, fan fiction writers, for the sex education that I never got. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, I think she really embraces the fandom of it, too. And it's it's so good. Like, Michaela, you have to read these books. What a queen. I I love creators that indulge their fan base, but not even just indulge. Because there's a difference between indulging, but then actually genuinely enjoying it. Mm -hmm. And I love... I love people who get uh, creators who get involved with their fan base yeah. to the extent where they actually make some of their ideas canon oh, because absolutely. because they love them so much. Yeah. And that's fantastic. But that's definitely like a couple days ago <laughs> when I was doing research for Crush Corner, I was like, oh, I should think about what I need to talk about in Infatuation Station. No, I don't. I know exactly what I'm going to be talking about <laughs> in Infatuation Station. And it's these books that I haven't been able to shut up about for two months. <laughs> but yeah, that's... that's. Uh, I, I knew that I had to talk about them as soon as we started recording again, so... Yeah, that's, that is exactly what Infatuation Station is for. <laughs> you came to the right place. Yes. They... Oh my god, those books are so good. Well, we're back to our regular format. We've now completed an episode back in our regular format. How do you feel? I feel pretty good. Yeah? Yeah. Hopefully you guys all feel good, uh, our lovely listeners. Um, If you want to tell us how you're feeling, you can definitely tweet at us at CrushworthyPod. You can find us on Instagram at CrushworthyPod. And you can find us on Facebook at uh, CrushworthyPodcast. We would love to see you guys on there and we would love to talk to you um you can also email us at crushworthypodcast at gmail.com and uh i think that's all of our socials right is that everything i think so yeah yeah um we don't have anything fancy like a discord or anything <laughs> maybe someday but oh thank thank you arnie parrot for our awesome theme music yes thank you arnie you can find him at atptunes.com um he actually has a uh a crowdfunding project that is not yet launched but is soon to be launched of music he did for i believe a podcast so um I, I i'm keeping an eye on it we tweeted about it uh last week i think at some point uh so once we have updates I'll, i'm definitely going to share them with our listeners too because he's very talented and just a very nice person um but i think that's going to be it right yeah i think so well guys until next week keep on crushing it Bye. Bye.